0: in telescopes and accessories. Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of Space Junk, a podcast dedicated to helping you get involved, get started and deepen your understanding of the night sky and amateur astronomy. My name is Tony Darnell with deepastronomy.space and today we are going to talk about imaging. So if you have ever thought about using your telescope to take pictures, or if you're already an advanced imager and imager, and you want to improve your skills, then this is the podcast for you, because we have as our guest today, Tim Puckett from SBIG, uh, along to talk with us about what the latest cameras are out there, how best to use them, and we're going to take a look at the future a little bit, too, and see what might be uh, coming down the pike. Uh, but before I introduce my guest, let me introduce my co-host, uh,
1: Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes of whom sponsors these podcasts each time, uh, hi, Dustin. you out there? Hey, Tony. This is an exciting one you know i've been uh, been friends with Tim a long time, and in astronomy, when most people think of awards, they think of, oh, I got my image published in a magazine or maybe a book or you know even a NASA aPod award, which is a really big deal, but for tim it's it 's pretty. <laughs> It's different. Tim has been awarded in ways that most people can't imagine. I mean, featured on ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, CNN, BBC, and on and on. Discovery, Learning Channels, Good Morning America. I mean, this is as far as you can go with amateur astronomy. I mean, he's he's truly done it all. Somebody I... I respect immensely um in amateur astronomy and the uh and, and honestly the awards list just goes on and on the discoveries go on and on and i want to get into all that today but uh tim welcome to the show this is exciting to have you here
2: hey thanks for having me guys
1: where do we even start with something like this
2: <laughs> yeah tell us a little bit tom
0: uh, tim about how you got um involved in uh imaging and and more importantly how you're you know what you're doing now with us
2: okay well um I like everybody, I guess it's a little older, started, you know, astro imaging with film. I guess you'd call it astrophotography back then. Um, but yeah, I bought my first CCD camera in 1988 and, uh, it was a $20,000 camera. It was 512 by 512 and a whopping eight bits of dynamic range. So there's been a lot of changes through the years, but, uh, um, uh, yeah, as far as being kind of on the ground floor of course professional astronomers had ccds before that but uh i think very few amateurs had them in the 80s
0: did you get started by um uh were you were you an amateur first or did you come at this from the professional field uh what where did you come from in getting started with imaging
2: well um i always had an interest in photography when i was five years old my parents took me to the library and i just uh, um gravitated to pictures of um star images, you know, like, uh, any book that had stars in it, I was drawn to. So anyway, so I've always had an interest in astronomy uh, in one way or another, but, uh, I started in astrophotography in 1978. I had missed Comet West. Um, Comet West was a big comet in 1976. And so I started, uh, started it, imaging, I wouldn't say imaging, I guess we'd call it, uh, you know, taking pictures with film. I know. Yeah. I, that, I
0: started then too, using film.
1: So Both of you started with film. I've, I've actually been spoiled because everything I've done from the beginning of my time in it has been digital. And so there's no real risk to taking an image. You're not, you know, if you throw it away, who cares? You didn't spend any extra money on that one image. And, you know, I can't imagine because it's so difficult you know, jumping in with digital imaging, I can't imagine the process with film where you're taking all of these images and you really don't even know what you got. Right, you're not getting any previews, you're not getting to see any of it. You're just hoping that everything's right, <laughs> hoping that your exposure's right, the time is right, the uh, ISO, like everything that you've got is right. And um, you don't even know until you go get that film processed.
0: Oh, God, Dustin, you have no idea how, how what it was like back then. I, I don't know. Did you did you start, Tim, with uh, with Ektachrome or did you use uh, technical pan 2415? How did what kind of film did you use?
2: Oh, uh, well, when I started in 78, I worked a summer job at a book bindery to buy my first uh, telescope. And it was a five and a half inch Celestron Smith camera. And so. Oh, wow. Early on, I started using a film-changing bag, which is a real hassle just in itself. You have these little plat- film platens. They're like little little round circles where you actually have to, in the dark, put your hands in a bag that's light tight. You take the film. You advance it into the little cartridge. Then you have to cut around the edges of the film, and you have to make sure you get no static, or otherwise it messes up the film. So, <laughs> so yeah, you go out. Whoa. You you'd grab all your stuff. You take it out 90 miles away so you have no sky fog or, you know light pollution. You drive all the way out there, set all this crap up. Then you're out there all night long trying to take these pictures and you're guiding with a little illuminated reticle, right? You know, for hours at a time. And then you get home and you have maybe five or six film chips that you have to develop by hand in little film changing tanks. So people have no idea how well it is what they have today.
0: That's right, and just one more—I'll add to it. The, if you were using a guide scope versus a, an off-axis guider in the in the field of, of of the optical path of the main objective, then what you had were were flexure differences between the two optical systems. And while you may be tracking the star perfectly with your illuminated reticle, your telescope was busy flexing in other directions and not necessarily following what you thought you were following, and you'd end up with star trails. So. Yes, this is definitely the time to get into imaging, uh, film, uh, I, all I can say is good riddance. I'm glad. I I, I never want to go back.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I can't say that that sounds like a hobby. That sounds like a nightmare, man. <laughs> it really was like how I imagine
0: like the 1860s photographers, you know, who had them giant cameras and they had these big photographic plates and they were setting and nobody could move for like several seconds while they were taking a photo. And, you know, that's what it reminds me of. It's like that versus uh, photography as it is now now and film versus CCDs now. It's just a different world. And, and
1: as Dustin, as you like
0: to point out, this is a time when really anybody
1: can get into imaging, right? I think it's the perfect time to, honestly. And, you know, it's funny because the first talk I ever did after we bought the company, I went and uh, I gave a talk on simple imaging. That was the name of the talk. And uh, it's really funny looking back at it now because I had no idea the film process was like that. But somebody was so offended in my talk about simplifying imaging and making it, you know, more accessible for people. And I was just going through and I was showing all of the different shortcuts you can take with, the, you know, digital imaging. The guy got up and he <laughs> he was he I mean, he was he was really upset. And he was telling me, he's like, this is not what, you know, those of us that came before had to do. And it shouldn't be this simple. We put in tons of time and I didn't know what he was talking about. Now, I guess I do. Now I understand why. After torturing yourself for years, like you're saying, with you know, even looking through the guide scope for for that long of an exposure and trying to manually guide, I mean, I, I guess it would be frustrating to see you know kids jump in and take images in five minutes. You know, yeah. What
0: you. Have- drive corrector and what it did was if you push the east and west buttons it either speeded up or slowed down the right ascension drive motor uh and then you had a if you were lucky enough to have a declination drive also attached then you had a north south button that you could adjust that way as well but not everybody had those and backlash oh backlash that's right and focusing and oh my god so yes uh these are the golden era of image. This is the golden era of imaging for sure.
1: So, um, yeah. So I guess that kind of explains a lot of the reason too, that you were wanting to build higher end equipment, Tim. I mean, you, you know, you made, I I mean, why don't you describe, because I know you made, it was a 24 inch scope, right. Out of things that you made yourself, like you welded it all. You built this entire system and I've seen it. I mean, it had to be a ton,
2: Yeah, it was a couple of tons, but, uh, yeah, if you, if you do a wiki on Puckett Observatory, you can read all about it. But, um, essentially I wanted to build a robotic telescope in the eighties and there was not, there wasn't anything available for, you know, the layman like me. So, um, I basically had to learn how to machine and weld and, you know, do all sorts of things. Uh, so I built, I built everything but the mirror and the gears and, um, and the, the basically the the automation or the uh, the go to system was built with off the shelf components, but you know uh, the telescope was finished in I think the early nineties, uh, and it was an F 24 inch F eight Ritchie, and um, so it was a very nice telescope. I still have the telescope. It's actually in storage now because uh, uh, life changes things. You know you have to move around, but uh, I'm still looking for a home for that and a few other telescopes I have.
1: Um, I'm looking at a picture of it now. So this was over 4,000 pounds of telescope.
2: Yeah, basically, I didn't have the, uh, I didn't have a big budget, so I had to build it paycheck to paycheck. And mm-hmm. so, I went to the scrapyards back in the day. They didn't recycle everything. They actually, uh, you know, had scrapyards where you could go and look at things. And I was lucky enough to live close to Lockheed, and uh, I could go and buy all sorts of uh, nice aluminum tubes and other things to make. So. Not talking about telescope tubes but just parts in general so it was basically made out of junk but if you look at it on the website it looks it's a nice looking telescope for somebody that built it you know themselves
1: well the image you have here uh right on the the front page of Puckett observatory the the wiki page at least uh i see it so you're sitting here in the foreground and then the scope is behind you i mean this thing looks like it's a building i mean it's huge it's it's massive. well,
2: that's one thing about not being an engineer. You know, if you want to play it safe, you just overbuild it kind of an idea thing. But right. uh yeah, it was a fun experience. It taught me a lot of respect for, you know, a lot of people that do make I mean, people don't realize the public doesn't realize exactly how much value they get in a lot of these commercial things. Like if you were to go out and build a mead or a Celestron telescope and build it from scratch, you're gonna spend a lot more time and money to build it than you can on a mass production scale, but um, there's just so much more advantages to what people have today, but yeah i've built telescopes and you know done other things but uh yeah, I think the main thing is it's a it's a really a golden era for amateurs to get involved now, and as Dustin was saying it's not that hard to get involved it's it's really, really easy to get involved in imaging today,
1: so I never knew that you had such a healthy mustache at that age i mean this is a this is a solid looking oh, eye there. <laughs>
2: It was a 10 pound mustache, I think. It
1: looks good. Yeah. I mean, everything you did was big.
2: Yeah. 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 Should have been in (laughs) Texas, I guess.
1: uh. (laughs) Yeah. It probably helped with the build, I'm sure. But um, so what, I mean, why would you start this project? I can't imagine going from, I have, you know, my five inch telescope to I'm going to build a 4,000 pound telescope. What, I mean, what caused you to want to do that?
2: Well, as I said, I worked a summer job at 15 to buy my first telescope. And at the time, the company was, I think, called Dixie Telescopes. And I spent about four or $5,000 all summer, the money, and then the company went bankrupt. And so I didn't get any of my gear, so I had to save more money and buy it again. So I was really motivated to really do things. And so I, was, I looked at the sun a little bit too long when I was a child, um, during a solar eclipse. And so my night vision is horrible. So I've never been a visual astronomer. I've always taken pictures. And so that's why I've always been drawn to photography. That's what my degree is actually in, is in photography. I was a advertising photographer for about 10 years. It looks like in, I mean, so
1: some of the parts you said, all this stuff was off the shelf, but it looked like looking at this picture, I mean, was some of this pulled from like farming equipment or, or what is this? What am I looking at?
2: Uh, well, yeah, actually the, uh, When I mean off the shelf, I mean like the stepper drivers and the stepper motors and things like that. But, you know, the superstructure, the fork, the base, all that stuff is just made out of scrap materials, you know. So the drive assemblies, I couldn't afford like a 36-inch worm gear. So I had to come up with a way to make a gear without spending the money. So what I did is I came up with this band drive system. And it's a flat disc. And it has uh, like a, say, one disc is seven times larger than the other. And at the end of the small disk is the worm gear. So you have a seven to one ratio. So if you have seven arc seconds of periodic error in a gear and that's reduced seven times, you have no periodic error. So actually, if you look at the, the wiki page, you'll see that those big aluminum disks actually came out of a cotton gin.
1: <laughs> wow, that's really ingenious. Wait, you, you made your telescope out of parts from a cotton gin.
2: And other things, aircraft and different things. But, you know, it just shows you that where there's a will, there's a way.
0: Can I just ask you about you, you? It sounds like you started this project initially, uh, knowing full well you wanted it to be a robotic telescope, right? I sure and, did, and in part because, you, as you said, you your night vision isn't very good, so you weren't you wanted this to be an imaging system. But why robotic? Because you can build an imaging system that is. Uh, more or less manual. Why'd you want it to be robotic?
2: Well, there's a really good reason for that. Um, as you know, the the website that I have, this, it actually needs to be uh, reconstituted again, but it was called CometWatch.com. And the reason it was CometWatch is every night I would shoot the minor planet list of observable comets. And I would post them to back then. It was NASA's, I mean, I'm sorry, JPL's comet homepage. And so as Levy would say, comets are like cats. So they change every night. So um, yeah, so I was basically imaging comets and, and, uh, wanted to build a scope for that, but I was dreaming of a way to be able to have it image all these things automatically while I slept because back in the day, as you know, with the temperature changes, you have to refocus back in the day. So, um, I, I slept on a couch while I was taking targets and I'd have to get up and, you know, refocus the telescope that was during the semi robotic era. Um, uh, when I started, as everyone else, you had to do everything manually. Well, as we know, most uh, professional observatories are
0: robotic, even though astronomers go to their telescopes when they've got time on them. They travel down there, mostly because they want to see their data being taken and they want to control anything that might happen to go wrong with it. Here, you've got a completely automated system that was built early on using off-the-shelf stuff, and that ends up being really useful. For a lot of scientific reasons, and uh, I think one of the not not most notably are automated searches, right? And that's one of the things you used your observatory for. You want to tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I can sort of tell you how it started and and why it started. Um, you you're familiar with the Baker Smith telescope, right? That they Fred Whipple built back in the '50s when Sputnik was launched, and they built these big five ton cameras to track satellites. Are you familiar with that? Uh, well, I'm old.
0: I am, but I don't think I think that might have been yeah, before my time. I'm not I so no, I don't remember it uh, exactly. But yeah, there's a lot of old scopes like that around uh, during the. Fair.
2: So anyway, uh, uh, at one point, I bought four of these things that uh, somebody had bought from DoD military surplus, and so I had uh, advertised it out on the web. This was in 1994, and uh, I got a reply back from Gene Shoemaker, and so I set up one of the the systems. And he came and looked at it, and we were going to set it up in the desert and go look for more comets. At that time, linear and all the different uh, automated surveys didn't exist. And the Baker Nunn-Smith camera has a field of view of 60 moon diameters by five moon diameters wide. So it was a huge field. So anyway, he subsequently died in a car wreck about less than a year later. So that idea got kind of killed. So I lost my zeal for comets. So I thought, well, what else can I do? I can do supernovas. So I thought, okay. So basically I started with a simple list and would go photograph all these galaxies manually. And I thought there's got to be a better way. So I already had the stepper motor system running, so I had to find a way to automate it. So uh, back in the day, the BISC had a program called Orchestrate, and I could fill in the blanks there and it would go and take the images. But at that time, there was no way to focus. Now you have these programs that will automatically focus your telescope looking at its point spread. So, uh, But in the beginning, I would have to sleep on a couch and every couple of hours get up and tweak the focus a little bit past focus. So as it got colder, it would be sort of back in focus again. So, uh, So the long and the short of it, the main reason I got involved with the automated system is either, A, I want to do an asteroid search, or I want to do a supernova search. But I knew going into this that I wanted to have something that would work while I slept. And there's a real good reason for that. The reason is, is that, uh, I, as everyone normally gets started, they load their car up, they take all their stuff into a dark location, and then they stay there all night and drive home. One night I was coming home, I woke up about 10 minutes later, I was still driving on the highway. And I said, I'm never going to do this again. So I I got a pier and some concrete and set up a telescope in my backyard and started imaging, you know, using a red filter to block out some of the sky glow or whatever. But I knew that I was never going to drive and do that again. But today, as you know, they have the capability of shooting uh, hydrogen alpha, sodium oxygen type filters where they can shoot from downtown japan and shoot uh you know gaseous beautiful nebulas with a mm-hmm. ccd camera so right. things in
1: fact has done that from Times square i believe <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. we do that quite a bit we shoot from cities all the time let me let me ask you when you say so this was gene shoemaker is you're talking about the comet hunter
2: yeah maker yeah he was um uh, he was actually worked for usgs i guess in the 60s and was involved in the apollo program and uh He's the discoverer of uh, Shoemaker-Levy nine, the comet that impacted Jupiter. Right. Anyway, yeah, that's the famous one, right? Yeah, he was probably the the most, uh, if I could say, coveted person I've ever met. I would say that Dr. Gene Shoemaker was probably the most important influence I've ever met. The thing I liked about him the most is that he was the most humblest person I had ever met. And but he was, you know, had all these awards and been on countless television programs. But he was just the most down to earth person. I just thought he was a really wonderful guy.
0: Yeah, I know just how you feel. I felt that way when I met Clyde Tombaugh uh, in New Mexico. Uh, he was just the nicest, most humble man you'd ever want to meet, and yet here's the discoverer of Pluto, and 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 it was very, uh, it was a very great experience. Well, your your so you're getting back to your supernovae um, survey. Uh, wide fields are important for these kinds of things because you need to be able to see a lot of the sky. Uh, what was the field? of you of this particular telescope that you're that you were you said it was how many full moons six full moons
2: that's the baker baker Non smith i tried to get that uh financed because it used special 70 millimeter film that had to have a special film run so after gene's death i went to the planetary society and uh, they had were offering a grant uh and they were taking submissions for you know this kind of thing and so I submitted a proposal to get the film because Kodak at the time wanted a minimum film run of $10,000 to make the film. And uh the, it was called the Gene Shoemaker Memorial grant or something like that. So I wrote a long letter about the whole thing. And of course it got rejected. And so at that point I'd contacted uh some people at Lowell and some people at other, you know, prestigious places. And there was really no interest. And so I actually sold those four telescopes to a billionaire who turned them into yard ornaments.
1: Oh, nice, <laughs> nice yard ornaments. All mm-hmm. right. So when did things turn around then? Because I mean, clearly you've been on every television show that exists. You know, you've um, you've been awarded. I mean, you have an asteroid named after you, right, for for your contributions. And then you also have a uh, what a Chambliss uh, Amateur Achievement Award.
2: Yeah, that's from the A S. That was a nice little thing. Yeah. It's a big four-ounce silver coin. So how
1: how did you get from there to here?
2: Well, you get a divorce. You spend all your time working on all these things and block everything out, holidays, weekends, friends. Uh, Basically, you just become completely obsessed, and uh, that's what happened to me. I got a divorce over that telescope. (laughs) Not Uh, what I
1: was expecting, Tim. Yeah. (laughs) was not the direction I thought it was going to go well
2: when we when we when we were together, she said, Oh, I'm fine with you making the telescope. That's no problem and then you know, about two years into it after every night after work and everything it's either the telescope or me, and so I filed divorce the next day at four wow. o'clock
1: so it really was the like all in commitment to this idea that you were going to well, I guess at the time it had changed to supernovas.
2: Right, and the best way to get me to do something is tell me I can't do it. Sure. And everybody did. They said, "Oh, you'll never be able to build it. You don't know what you're doing." You
1: see so. that a lot with astronomers, actually. You know, or I probably just a lot with. Uh, I feel like you know, intelligent people in general. <laughs> I wouldn't call somebody, myself
2: intelligent at all, but
1: yeah, somebody that that builds their own robotic telescope before they exist, for sure, for sure, definitely an easy task to him. So, um, so you get a divorce, you continue working with the telescope and i mean what you know what was the next step like how did you get to where all of these people like why does abc want to talk to you
2: i see what you mean now well what happened is it took me 10 years to build a telescope okay 10 whole years and uh i had a friend of mine george roberts he was a machinist in the navy back in the 50s and um uh, George took me under my wing and taught me how to do all this stuff, how to build all these, you know, weld and all this other stuff. So I finished the telescope and we started, you know, I started shooting with CCDs. At that time, uh, this, the telescope was finished in the early 90s. So in around 1994, uh, I had found a supernova serendipitously. It was uh, a, a nice, bright supernova in M51, the you know, the Messier M51. And uh, that really gave me the bug. And, um, the reason is, is that there was a picture of the, I was focusing the telescope on, uh, on, on, a star in the field of M51. And I looked at a piece of paper, it just happened to be a publication that had M51. And I look up and look at the screen and go, that star's not supposed to be there. Mm. Well, at the time I didn't even have an internet connection. So I had to run next door to a friend of mine and, and have him file the report. So... Anyway, it's sort of like gold fever. Once you find something like that, it's sort of like painting for gold. You get the, you get the fever for it. So, and that's what started it.
0: So you're looking primarily in other galaxies, nearby galaxies for these supernovae.
2: Yeah, we have a, we have a target list of about 14,000 galaxies that we image every four days. And the main thing that we're trying to do is to find them as early as possible. You know why, but uh, we're trying to find them as early as possible. And, um, uh, you know, that's what I've been doing every night uh, since 1998. We started our full-time dedicated search in 1998. And so it's still going on. It's what, 20 20 years or more, it's still happening. We found another supernova last week. So,
1: And what is a supernova?
2: Well, uh, you know, there's several types of supernovas. There's a type 1, type 2, there's a new type, type 1AX, and uh, there's there's different types of supernovas, but essentially what it is is that a star that explodes at the end of its life, and it basically uh, gets as bright as the galaxy itself. And so that's why you can shoot a picture of a galaxy, and then shoot it the next night, and all of a sudden there's a star there. So. Uh, anyway, so that's the main thing, what a supernova is. But for me, it was like gold hunting, you know, to to find them. It was kind of a fun thing.
0: And where do you send your data once every night? Or do you do you send it every night anywhere? Do you just keep it locally and then uh, and presumably you process it automatically? Tell us about that. Tell us after the night is over, you've got a hard drive full of images. What then?
2: Well, at first, when I started doing it in 1998, I did it by myself. And so I was shooting, you know, seven, 800 galaxies and then spending the next part of the day trying to look at all these things. And I said, there's no way I can do this by myself. I need help. And so a friend of mine in a local astronomy club, he lived 45 miles away. So we found a vacant lot that had an old building in it. And I would, at that time, I think it was we used a PsyQuest drive. It was like a little cartridge drive or something. But anyway, we would drive halfway each way to this vacant lot, and I'd leave the disk in there, and he'd look at half on his computer, and I'd look at the other half. Then as the internet got faster. Manually? Yeah. Well, yeah, well the, there was no software to do this when we started. Uh, we had to call up two copies of software and then load the old image on one piece of software, load the other image on another piece of software on this other side of the screen. So it's kind of like your eyeballs are doing a tennis match.
0: Oh, the old blink comparator uh, route.
2: Yeah, it's worse, you know, we're not blinking yet. So so Maxim DL, a, a friend of mine who owns SBIG now, he uh, helped, helped write a piece of software along with AJ Seagal to allow us to automatically call up and blink the images, you know, as they're taken. And so what ended up happening was, is we would actually take the data. And as it's being taken, each grid would get zipped and uploaded to an FTP site. And we have a sign-up sheet where people can go and sign out for a block of data. And so essentially it ended up at, in its heyday, it was uh, 28 volunteers in five countries. And so uh, it was basically a little citizen science program that kind of morphed into its own. As the internet got faster, you know, we were able to get more people. And, uh, and now, you know, th- with all the surveys now, it's getting really hard to find anything.
1: And if we have if we have listeners that would be interested in contributing to this, is that something they can do through POS?
2: We would love to have no, more members. The problem is, is after they find a dozen supernovas and they give four or five talks to their astronomy clubs or get some award from some state or whatever, then they get kind of burned out. So this shelf life of a volunteer is, you know, a couple of years. And so uh, we've ran out of people. We need more people.
0: So, where would you where, where could we send them uh, to go? Is there a website?
2: There's a website, but unfortunately, I moved the site. It's not up right now, but it'll be up in about a week. It's, it's they can go to cometwatch.com. It's got my phone number and my email address there. They can contact me if they'd like to join.
1: It's POS, right? Puckett Observatory Supernova Search.
2: Right. And, and you can go to wiki and just type Pucket Observatory and you can see all the madness there. And
0: email us at uh, spacejunk at deepastronomy.com and we'll, we'll spend it. I'll, I'll forward it to them as well. So there's that as well.
1: Yeah. You know, I was actually told at one of the conferences I was I was at and somebody was, I think this was before you and I even met, Tim, but they were telling me about POS. And um, I was told, you tell me if this is true, that you, your group has found more supernovae than any other group out there other than like say NASA, right?
2: Well, the professionals find more of course, but as far as an amateur group, I think we, we lead the record for amateur, uh, discoveries.
1: And so that's why ABC, NBC, CBS, all the, that's, that's what they wanted to hear about.
2: Well, not actually. I used to take a lot of pictures back in the day when, uh, when I had these cameras, I used to take a lot of pictures of, uh, lots of celestial events and, uh, I guess due to my proximity to CNN, uh, you know, th- things kind of took off from there, but, uh, I, I worked with John Holloman at CNN who's passed away. Uh, but, uh, I had a connection with uh, John Holloman at CNN and if they had some news story or something to do with the sky, I would supply them with materials and things. So, uh, I'm not sure if it's the proximity of CNN, uh, networks came out and did stories about all the craziness I've done. So, you know, maybe it just kind of took off from there. So what
1: were you talking about on Good Morning America?
2: Uh, I think we were talking about uh, my observatory and how it was hand-built and all this kind of stuff. I think they were sort of doing a puff piece on what somebody that's really uh, committed or should be committed was about.
1: Right. Well, I mean, they're probably just as as blown away as I am. The idea that you can take a cotton gin and (laughs) – and make a robotic mount
0: out of it. Can you tell us a little bit about your observatory right now? Uh, what What's the setup you have? And can you give, give give our listeners some sense of how much that might cost, how much you've got invested, and then in stuff like that, just so we can get a sense of what, what you've got now, what you're operating?
2: What I have and what people can buy today are totally different. Um, if somebody wanted to get involved in starting their own search or starting to do some sort of automated research, uh, they could buy, you know, Three or $4,000, they could buy a telescope and a camera and get started today. I mean, that's where technology's led it today. Uh, most of what I did, you know, was basically done week to week on a paycheck kind of thing. So I don't know if I could put a value on it, but uh, remember we were talking earlier about how the citizen science part of it and how you can do more with, you know, with more people involved and included than just doing things on your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I did is I actually got other imagers to come in and help me. And so, uh, Dick Post, uh, Jack Newton, uh, you know, they're, are these guys that have really nice telescopes and they actually image uh, every night uh, and help supply us with data because after, you know, 15, 20 years of me doing all the imaging, I, I wanted more help. And so it's not just a Tim Puckett thing. It's, it's a whole group of people. It's, uh, you know, we have other people that take images and contribute. So it's, it's really, it's grown into a, a big thing, but it's unfortunately, you know our time is limited as you know the professional surveys are getting bigger and bigger and uh just like it's very rare for an amateur to find a comet now it's going to become very rare for an amateur to find a supernova so you know the it's starting to the window's going to close but there's still lots of things that amateurs can do with CCDs and cameras there's variable star photography astrometry comet You know, looking at the objective of certain gases out of comets, there's all kinds of things you can do. There are some groups that are even doing rotational studies of asteroids. They do the photometry of the asteroids. They can actually, uh, you know, uh, plot the shape of the asteroid. How
0: accurate is your photometry and i ask that from the sense of one of the things i'm curious about and i'm going to use some of opt's uh telescope the remote telescopes to test this out but i'm curious about the ability of equipment like yours and off-the-shelf equipment that's sold uh, commercially to do exoplanet transits and i want i know that the photometry needs to be uh, <laughs> pretty darn good uh Uh, and they can do it from the ground they do it at the european southern observatory keck does it lots of places do it but i just wondered i'm wondering if amateurs can do it and i know they can because the very first exoplanet ever discovered was found with an f2 uh 22 inch telescope in a parking lot using an uh, an lx 200 mead mount uh 16 inch mount and so I know that it can be done, but I wonder if you've thought about that at all and whether your equipment would be well suited for that kind of transit method measurement.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, certainly field of view is an important thing to begin with just for what you're looking for. Uh, I know a lot of the like the Gaspar Bacos, he had the HAT survey uh, and some of these surveys are using uh, like. Canon, what are they called, uh, nanofiber, you know, the, they're using basically expensive Canon lenses.
0: Yeah, the Dragonfly telescope uh, does that.
2: Yeah, yeah, you're right, because S-Big supplied some of the cameras for the Dragonfly project. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you could use wide field methods. Uh, the 24 inches uh, that I made was a 5,000 millimeter focal length telescope. So if I'm using a back illuminated CCD that's about 13 millimeters square, I only get about a 14 minute Arc minute field of view, so I have to be looking at something very specific, i.e., like a small galaxy, which is basically another reason why we chose, you know, the supernovas is because, you know, if the scope's going to point all night to specific targets and you need aperture to get there, well, it's really hard to have a huge telescope that has a really wide field of view. So I think what we were using it for put it to good use. Uh, if you were going to look at specific stars and look for exoplanets, I believe you could do that, but. As far as the way most people, I assume, are doing it is with the wide field of view. And then, you know, just doing photometry, looking for those eclipsing um, events, I believe you'd have to have a wider field system. Would you not agree?
0: I uh, No, not if you're going to already look at candidates that are known. For example, there, there's the Kepler field of view in Cygnus, the 160,000 stars, 5,000 some odd candidates. So they've wow. identified a lot of stars in that field of view that could potentially harbor planets and of course kepler is a much it's it's a much better photometric telescope at least it was and so by you will know a priori what kind of star you're going to be looking at which star you're going to look at uh you just need good photometry because you're only looking at dips in brightness of some like one part in a billion so it's really hard to catch some of these light curves but say a hot jupiter passing in front of a star could, I think, be measurable. And the value of that is the more data you have on a system that you know about, the better. Because Kepler was only up for five years, and it's got, you know, only so many uh, uh, light curves. And again, when those candidates go to ground-based telescopes for follow-up on radio velocity measurements, things like that, uh, they also don't have a lot of time. And that's what's needed, is time uh, to look at these things, especially for stars or for planets that have orbits that are like the Earth, where it takes a full year to get each transit. Right. So I don't know. I, I you can't, it can be done. I just wonder if these, uh, but what, what's, what's worrisome about it is the degree of the photometry available uh, to you.
1: Yeah. Well, Tony, ex- explain why the dip in brightness matters. Like uh, when you're looking for that, why are you looking for a dip in brightness? Because that is the planet
0: moving between us and the star and From that, you learn two things. You learn the size of the planet uh, that is passing in front of the star, which gives you some indication of the kind of planet it is compared to the star diameter, and you're getting uh, the orbital period, how how often it goes around the star. And a lot of these planets go around their star on or- orders of days or even hours. And so some of them are really whipping by quickly. Uh, and so I, this kind of data, that's why it's important, because you're measuring the planet as it goes in between the uh, the star in us. Okay, well, I guess we I want to I want to help people who are listening to this podcast with some specifics, some specific advice. Let's, can we start with beginners? What advice, Tim, would you give somebody who maybe they own a telescope, they just bought one, and they're thinking maybe they'd like to get involved in imaging with their telescope? what advice would you give them?
2: Well, the first thing I would do is have them read a good bit before they go out and buy something. Um, You know, just as we're here at OPT, they have some really good people here that can put them in the right direction too. But, um, you know, you remember the cookbook camera that came out? You could take a $300 camera and you could take wonderful pictures. It's all about methodology and how well you prepare and how you how, how your workflow is you know how, how good you're doing things if with ccds whether it be cmos or ccd you still have to do image calibration which are flat fields dark frames and bias frames and if you do it's sort of like putting car a uh, gas in a car you got to put the gas in the car and so as long as they do calibration uh, they'll end up with good work and it comes it's a, time, it's a it's in focus of course but it's a time-based thing you know the more time you add but, um, yeah, it's, it's as far as general advice, uh, I would think that, you know, if they've already got a DSLR, they could, they could try it with a DSLR to see if they get the bug. Uh, they sell cameras here starting at around $300 up to $50,000. So um, I guess it just depends on the person's budget and what they can do. But, you know, as we were talking earlier, uh, with the way technology is filtered down from the professional world now, I mean, anybody could get started for, you know. Fifteen hundred dollars. I mean, the whole rig probably. So mm-hmm.
1: yeah, that's about what it is to get an entire system. And we're seeing some of the the best images coming out of some of these small systems, little like seventy millimeter apo uh, refractors with uh, CMOS sensors on them. And I mean, people are getting in for under two grand easily for an entire kit from scratch.
0: And what kind of cameras are you are you including with those, Dustin?
1: Uh well, there's a lot of different brands, but I mean mostly mostly on that side to get into the the price point that we're talking about now, it's usually CMOS cameras. Uh when you're looking at, you know, a lot of the higher end imaging, it's uh CCD cameras still and uh you know into like medium format, the bigger sensors. Mm-hmm. And so usually that's what happens is people start somewhere and then end up going with larger sensors, higher resolution sensors, or um, they're looking for specific pixel sizes or, or any, any particular thing um, more, you know, driven towards a certain purpose. Like, like Tim's purpose is obviously very different than mine. I'm just trying to take pretty pictures. So I could never use a telescope. That's got five meters of focal length, like the one he's talking about. Um, But, you know, it's that's kind of where it starts is people start with really wide field imaging systems because you don't have to buy a lot you know that wide you don't even have to guide um you're taking short exposures and usually people start with color cameras and then as they they progress, they get into monochrome systems you start using filter wheels and different accessories you know that's where focusers come in you know like automated focusers with temperature compensation and the whole nine so um yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good place to start. If people ask, like, what's the budget to get started? Yeah, fifteen hundred bucks is probably fair.
0: Would that include the software that's needed to control your telescope and take the images? I mean, I, I, I give us a sense of okay, you've got the camera connected to the telescope, you're tracking, an eye. you're 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 taking an exposure. What? how what's the software that's generally used in that in that situation
1: so you've it's it's really i mean there's so many different options you know diffraction the uh the parent company to Sbig has um has a complete solution that can control pretty much everything i mean i can't think of anything it can't control maximum dl i mean it can control a dome and the whole nine i mean it can control everything right tim
2: yeah it can uh, i mean there are software packages from 49 dollars on up it really depends on the hardware and when, what the person's trying to do. Are they trying to do anything in an automated fashion? You have to remember that most of these camera manufacturers normally have some inbox software that will allow the user to to go ahead and take images right out yeah, of the that's box. That's going to be my
0: next question. So good. So there's going to be something yeah. they can use when they buy a camera.
1: Right. And so one of the things we offer to people buying new packages is we just got something in called the StellarMate as well. Which is it's about one hundred and fifty dollars, but it comes with the computer and it's preloaded with all of the software you need to run everything. So for people just getting started, I mean, it's a really—I mean, I I still use one now, um, but it's a really good place to start because it is very inexpensive. And then as you get to where you want to automate more things, or you really want to take it to that pro level, or even just you want to take it—you know—to a level that you know you can do things that maybe the uh, the less expensive software can't. Um, even with just processing or whatever, that's where you start looking into the more professional solutions like Maxim DL or SkyX or you know some of the other the bigger packages.
0: Is that the way you distinguish between the next level? Because I want to go to the advanced imager now. You've, if you've got all your equipment that you've spent some money on, you're taking pretty decent images with it. What distinguishes a beginner from an advanced imager? Is it the software they're using? Uh,
1: no, no, I, I wouldn't say it's the software. Using. I mean, so I, um, I still do the majority of my imaging. I like to be part of the process. So I have a fully automated observatory that I run out in Joshua Tree where, I mean, I can select the targets. I literally just click the pictures, tell it how many I want to shoot for how long, when to switch targets, all that stuff. And I go to sleep. I wake up the next day and it's got all the data from the night. But I feel like that it's a little bit removed from the process for me. So the majority of the images I post, I still take in my front yard sitting right there next to the telescope running simple programs like nebulosity. You know, that's a ninety nine dollar program, but I use it because um, I can capture in it and I can also process in it. And for me, it's almost like fishing. You know, I like to to throw out that 30 or 45 minute exposure. And then as as soon as it comes in, I get excited. I start processing it right there on the software. And so you know, and I know I know a lot of imagers like that that are putting out, you know, some of the most circulated work out there that are still using, you know, both sides of it, They're using very simple software for some imaging and very, very complex solutions for other. I could tell that when we when we
0: had the podcast with Travis Burke a couple of podcasts ago, you you were very much in tune with getting out there under the stars yourself and 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 doing the doing the imaging directly. I could tell that about you. So that's that's really cool. I mean, and, and it is different, I suppose, isn't it? Um, and there's different reasons, some of them very practical, for why you would want to do it automa- automatically like uh, like Tim is doing.
1: I mean, think about if you had a – like if somebody had a camera positioned focused on uh, – you know, in Yosemite on maybe like LCAP, uh, LCAP right? I mean, you're – it's great if you could log into that from home and you could snap that photo – but it's pretty different than sitting there, looking at Cap, taking a photo while you're there, experiencing it. You know, being out under the night sky is an experience all its own. And then capturing it, I mean, it really just, for me, it makes, it, it amplifies the experience. And, um, you know, it's not that I don't absolutely love the pictures. That's a huge part of why I do this. I, I do. I love the pictures. I love the process of taking them from start to finish. So when I get that data in from my, remo- my remote observatory, I'm still very excited about it but um it's still there's nothing better than being out under the night sky and doing this with you know hands-on
0: okay so tim uh, what what do you what do you think about this going from beginner to amateur is there a clear <laughs> boundary there or do you just suddenly find yourself wow i've been doing this for 10 years i'm, I'm pretty much advanced uh, at this or you know is there is there some kind of boundary that you could identify that might separate a beginner from a more experienced imager
2: i think the main thing is technique you know, is, is how good is your technique? You know, uh, how, how good are you doing what you're out there doing? I know some people that, you know, can buy a system and they're taking great pictures in in a week and some people it takes them longer. Um, I know my dad, when he was still living, we wouldn't even let him near the VCR, but you know, some people are more technically minded and you have to realize that, you know, today's technology is mostly run by computers. So Um, you know, I guess I just grew up in a different age, but as far as I'm concerned, we're all amateurs, unless you have a, you know, a degree in, uh, astronomy and you make your living in astronomy, you're a, you're a professional astronomer and everybody else is an amateur. But, um, I think we're all in the same boat together. Um, if I may, I just want to bring up one point, if I may, um, you know, Dustin has told me that he wants to bring astronomy, you know, basically to the public, you know, because I think that's important because, um, you, you what's happening is, is over time, as the old people, you know, retire and die off and things, we want to replenish the the uh, astronomy community with younger people to get them involved. I think that the new technology where you can take an image with your iPad and your kitchen or on your cell phone at a restaurant, I think all this is really appealing to the younger crowd. And I'm hoping that we get a lot more people involved in in this hobby. And so... Uh, I, I only see positive things about it,
0: and it's very easy to do. Really, if you just take a—I've noticed anyway—a moderate amount of effort goes a long way because people are naturally drawn to astronomy. Uh, and looking up, they want to talk about planets and 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 uh, exoplanets and supernovae and black holes and all of this stuff is just—it's it, very much in our imaginations naturally, and so we don't have to work too hard uh, to do it. But we do have to do it. We do have to get out there. We do have to show people what these telescopes can do and and in part that's what this podcast does but it's also what work like what you know what Tim is doing and what other amateur astronomers and you know uh, Travis Burke and others that we've talked to are getting people involved and out there uh, under the stars and it's not it doesn't have to be hard it doesn't have to be expensive and it doesn't have to be complicated but you we we do have to get started and that's sort of what we're doing here. With your current setup in, in Georgia and the Supernovae search, you're also involved with SBIG, the company. Can you tell us a little bit about what they're doing and what you're doing there, the camera manufacturer?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so the SBIG was sold about four years ago to Fraction Limited. Uh, Doug George, the owner, uh, he had written Maxim DL, still does, a uh, very popular program. Uh, He took over the company about four years ago. Prior to that, the cameras were made in uh, uh, Singapore, I believe. Anyway, he brought the manufacturing back to North America. Everything's made in North America. The service is uh, service centers in California. Uh, uh, Essentially, he basically is making an SBIG 2.0. And uh, his mission is, is to bring in, to keep the amateur cameras going, but also I had a pro level camera too. So, uh, you know, we're working on a lot of designs there for, we just came out last about a year ago with back illuminated CCD cameras to bring to the market, uh, for the S big clientele. And, uh, you know, we're going to be adding more things too, but we want to keep the amateur part alive, but we also want to go towards the professional end of, uh, of camera manufacture as well. So there's several different things going on at the same time. Now
0: you mentioned. Back illuminated. Dustin mentioned it earlier in the podcast. Can you define for us what that means?
2: Back illuminated CCDs are basically a CCD that is flipped upside down and and etched or thinned. And so with front illuminated CCDs, you have what's called a gate structure. Just imagine that it's like a chain leak fence over the front of the CCD and it blocks part of the light. That's why front illuminated sensors only capture between 40 and 60 percent of the light that hits it. A back illuminated CCD has no structure or gate structure in front of it and actually captures about 95% of the light that hits it when they're extremely efficient. If you look at a back illuminated CCD, you don't really see a reflection off of it. it. They don't even hardly reflect light. When you look at a front illuminated CCD, it looks like a mirror. But that's why in 94, 95, that's when I started using back illuminated cameras because I saw the power in it. Because... You want i wanted to go as faint as fast as you possibly can and you can do that with uh, back illuminated ccds and then you also have em ccds which is another type of camera that's uh extremely sensitive but as far as the work at SBIG, uh, i basically consult with SBIG, uh you know help customers solve problems and solutions and uh you know that's basically what i do for these guys The gate
0: structure is necessary. You've got to have it because that's what collects the the electrons once they've been activated by the photons. But you you need to get it out of the way uh, because it blocks a lot of light if it's out front. And so what you get from this is flipping it over, you get a lot more sensitivity, a lot more photons for – just because just by changing the geometry of the camera and so that's uh that's a very so look for that as a feature in some of the cameras that you would be may perhaps wanting to purchase and of course as, mm-hmm. as Dustin pointed out earlier CMOS cameras are also on the rise they didn't used to be good um but now I guess they were just they're just too noisy in the past but now I guess they are uh, some of the best, right, Dustin?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, people that are, you know, still cranking out the A pods regularly, we see most of them coming from CCDs still. Um, I think CMOS will, it will absolutely catch up. Um, you know, it's where a lot of the investment is going in technology. And so it, it's kind of being forced that way. Um, and some manufacturers are stopping their uh, production of, of certain CCDs. So, It's probably going to go that way right now. I'd say there's still an advantage to CCDs, but um, yeah, I mean, the, the stuff that is being produced is better and better by the day. And um, I'm starting to see pretty, pretty phenomenal work coming out of some of these cameras that are a fraction of the price of what they used to be, you know, some of these CMOS chips. And um, I mean, they're really, I've used some myself actually, and I, I really think they're, they're impressive. Yeah, the uh, one of the big advantages of CMOS is the
0: readout, the fr- the frame rate you can get from a CMOS chip is much higher than what you get from a CCD. Right. The CCDs tend to use Absolutely. the old bucket brigade that we're all used to talking about. You you know you pass buckets down a down a row and then down a column and you end up with all of your image that way. But that's a lot slower than a CMOS detector can do it, which is more or less all at once, or at least sections of the chip all at once, and so mm-hmm. you get a higher frame rate that way who does SBIG make its own uh detectors or does it farm that out and does it get them does it get them from Uh, other uh third parties
2: well actually just to be clear all these camera companies that OPT and the other uh resellers or you know distributors represent uh, none of these companies make their own detectors uh you have Sony, Hamamatsu, E2V, etc. they make the chips these all these places like SBIG and other companies uh you know, uh, whatever they, they just integrate around the chip. So they basically build the platform and I'd like to back, if it's okay, I'd like to back up a minute about the CCD versus of CMOS. Course, sort of, if you wanted to take uh, normally if a customer is coming in with a, a small budget and they want to get started, the CMOS detector is a good way to go. They're low cost. They don't cost very much. They have a high frame rate, but They also saturate very quickly. And so they are more suited for, uh, you know, solar work or video type work where you might be observing the sun or the moon or doing eyepiece projection or something of the planets. I mean, basically doing poor man's lucky imaging by using a program that just steals the best images and stacks them. Most professionals still use CCDs uh, and people that are doing pretty much scientific work because of the bit depth. Uh, I know that uh, you can create a higher bit depth with CMOS, but a lot. We're, we're, we have a camera that we're working on now that's a back-illuminated uh, CMOS camera. The maximum exposure time you can run that camera is only four minutes because it, it, the, the noise saturates. So it's really just two different technologies. So when people go out with a, a CMOS camera, they can take good pictures. The problem is they have to take a bunch of pictures and stack them, and, and shorter exposure, long amount of, of pictures to stack. So the difference in that in the CCD is where with the CCD, you take a 20-minute exposure, and you're done. So there there is pros and cons to both. But the CCD, there's no way you'd want to do any sort of high frame rate work. So I'm hoping that we see uh, – Uh, more technology. As you know, they have orthogonal transfer CCDs, which are out of the reach of amateurs and a lot of pros. Uh, I think we need a a third thing to come along because the CMOS, I don't think just inherent in its design, I don't think it's it's ever going to lend itself to long, long exposures where just like CCDs are never going to be able to have a very, very fast frame rate. You know, Uh, with CCDs that have, say, two or four output gates where they read out, you know, sections of the chip simultaneously at different places, those can get up to 30, 40 frames a second. But I think, you know, there's a limit to what you could do. So I think certainly the CMOS cameras, if you're just getting into it, is a good camera to start with. But in my personal opinion, I think if, as you go along uh, and you want to do top quality work, I still think a CCD is you know, the way to go, but I guess I'm biased.
1: Well, no, I'm currently using, so I use uh, several different brands of CCDs but I do, I do very long exposures. And in my observatory, I have an SBIG 16803 that's been there since I built the observatory. And so all of the, uh, the super high res stuff that I post on Instagram and other places, that's all been taken with a 16803. It's a medium format, nine micron pixels, really big pixels. Um, this is a, a beast of a camera. And, um, the reason I put that out there is exactly what Tim's talking about. I mean, my exposures are very, very long. You know, forty-five minutes is kind of my standard exposure, and a lot of my exposures I push to an hour. But you know, the final images, like the one I just posted of the Helix, that was ninety hours of data. You know, and so it it serves me a lot better to do long exposures than to try to, you know, do a zillion one-minute exposures to uh, to try to get. Get to the end,
2: one thing I do want to mention about the benefits of CMOS, and that is remember, we were talking before about the $1,500 customer that wants everything. Well, to get more people into the market, those lower cost cameras are a great way to get people in. And, and once they're used a CMOS camera, they want to get something more expensive or larger, you know, then CCDs are a way to come in to do that. But uh, I think it's great that people can image, you know, f- with a camera and a telescope for $1,500. It's only right. got to bring more people into Absolutely.
1: the hobby. Yeah, I totally agree. And so my 16-0-3, my what, what is, like, how do, how does it stay cool enough to run 45-minute exposure? Why don't, why isn't it just overloaded with noise?
2: Well, the reason is, is it's got what's called a thermoelectric cooler. And it's basically ceramic wafers and you apply voltage and one side of the wafer gets hot and the other side gets cold. Um, and that's how you dissipate the heat. Uh, that's why with a standard DSLR camera, you have to take a dark every time you take a, a a light image because you have no way to control the temperature. Um, a lot of the CMOS cameras that Dustin sells are, are thermoelectrically cooled and, uh, just depends on the price point, but thermoelectric cooling for the amateur world is basically where it is. As, uh, as you know, the professionals, Uh, use LN2 uh, which is nothing I want anything to do with I want to keep my fingers Uh, (laughs) but liquid nitrogen and things like that that's way above above anything we would do but uh, a lot of the pros use either liquid nitrogen or they will use like a four or five stage thermoelectric wafer with a water assist
0: and those use quite a bit of um, electricity because of the, uh, the the current that they use to pull the uh, the temperature the delta T they call it away from the uh, away from the detector itself by comparison another option besides ln2 is water you were talking about the cookbook camera earlier uh i built mine the the plans included machining for water uh or basically antifreeze to go through the uh the the housing body to keep the little ti chip cool and so when i was observing with that i had a bucket of water (laughs) down below the the uh the telescope pumping water through that camera, uh, to get rid of the waste heat that it was, uh, less than ideal, but, um, that's another way you can keep, I wouldn't recommend dumping your S into it anywhere near water. Uh, but that's another way you could keep them cool as if they're designed for. It.
2: That's true. Water assist is a good way to go, but I really don't like water assist in any manner, because like you say, getting water around electronics is not a smart plus, unless your, your chamber is in a vacuum, if you once you get once the water hits the dew point, you get condensation on the windows and all kinds of other things happen. So, we actually have some cameras that are water cooled, but you don't have to run them water cooled. They're thermoelectrically cooled. I, I recommend against yeah. water.
1: Yeah, so mine mine has the option for water cooling, but oh, I've never used it.
2: We, we've actually taken that option. I think we're getting ready to get, remove that option because yeah. nobody uses the water cooling anymore. The, right. the The thermoelectric coolers are so efficient this day and age. But uh, he's right about one thing: you don't a four or five stage cool the camera. You wouldn't run that off a car battery. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, well, thank you so much, Tim, for joining us for this episode of Space Junk. Uh, thank you, Dustin. We got another one in the can. That sounds really uh, like an interesting uh, topic, and I'm really glad we were able to cover uh, the supernova search, especially the automated supernova search, because that's interesting to me as well. Thank you all so much for listening, and as always, keep looking up. Space Junk was produced by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California, in partnership with Deep Astronomy. Please send feedback and questions to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.